Our Bible reading today is from Romans chapter 6. Uh, this is a rich and intricately argued section of Romans, so it will really help if you've got it open in front of you. There should be a pew Bible just in front of you. Um, turn to page 1131. Romans 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Sorry, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey, obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather... Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using it as, as an example from everyday life. Because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin... You were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have became, become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, listen, I reckon this morning you will not be able to follow along um, without having Romans chapter 6 open in front of you. So please do that. It's page 1131. And uh, as you're doing that, I just need to legally let everyone know that we are seeking an amendment to the Manly Corso Property and Mortgage Ordinance, which is one of my personal favourites. That covers the financing connected to the building that we finished last year. We're just getting all our ducks lined up. if you want to see a copy of that legal paperwork, it's at the back. Try to avoid a stampede. Thank you very much. Let's pray and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, uh, you're good to us, not the least um, because you made us and you speak to us and you've saved us. So um, let us pay attention, help us to pay attention to these words in Romans 6 that we can live with for you with all of our hearts. Amen. Amen. Now, friends, um, it seems to me there are some offers that seem too good to be true, aren't there? Um, They used to be on TV, those sorts of offers, uh, where for today only you'd get some amazing gadget at half price with a free set of steak knives thrown in. These days, uh, if I'm ever looking for an offer that seems too good to be true, I can find them in my junk mail filter, which screens out the genuine email from kind of spam stuff. And I've been receiving uh, lately offers to make millions on cryptocurrency. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? Um, Offers about weight loss via natural keto supplements. I can burn fat fast for this summer. And that's talking about the American summer without diet or exercise. It sounds interesting. I receive, I mean, I'd buy it if it had a free set of steak knives. Uh, I mean, I receive offers to make my hair grow miraculously, offers to make my lawn grow miraculously, offers to make my bank account grow miraculously, none of which which require work, or at least not much work. Amazing results just by clicking here. Now, most of us look at these offers and we think if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. But from 1 January to 1 May this year, Australians lost over $200 million to scams. So someone's buying and someone's losing big time. Now at the centre of the Christian life, there is an offer that actually looks too good to be true, isn't there? Because we say that our sins and shortcomings are wiped clean, at least in terms of the eternal penalty they attract before God. And and we believe that we are additionally treated by God as if we were not only innocent, that is without crime, but as perfect and as positive as Jesus was in his earthly life. It, It just sounds too good to be true. And to nuance it a little bit, the New Testament tells us that when God gave the Old Testament law to Moses, it started to record our wrongdoings or charge them to our account to the point where the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 that we looked at last week said this, The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So sin increases, it's now recorded on our transcript, it's charged to our account, but for Christians, where sin increased, the forgiving grace of God increased all the more to cover that sin. Well, my goodness, does that not sound too good to be true? 
And so in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul anticipates these sorts of objections, especially from among uh, perhaps converts, Jewish converts in the Roman church. And you can see him anticipating these objections in two places in today's passage, uh, verse 1 and in verse 15, which we're going to read now, and you're going to read it with me because you've all got your Bibles open in front of you. So let's read verse 1. What shall we say then, Paul imagines? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Or down in 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So two questions that structure the whole chapter. Two answers from the Apostle Paul that provide us with powerful motivations to resist and to rebel against sin and temptation in this new life that we have in Christ. So firstly, we're dead to sin, he says, but alive to Christ. And secondly, we're not slaves to sin anymore, but slaves to righteousness. That's what we're looking at today. Now, if you're here for the first time, this is our last week in our Roman series we've been tracking all term. The Apostle Paul has described beautifully, brilliantly, how we ungainly and sinful human beings are nevertheless declared righteous by God, treated by him as if we were as pure and as positive as Jesus was in his earthly life, though we're anything but, should we trust in Jesus' life, death and resurrection? He has shown us that the people of God have always been declared right and acceptable to God on the basis of belief or faith or trust, all the way back to Abraham. He's traced our fallen uh, and sinful humanity even further back to Adam, and he has rejoiced in the salvation and the relationship with God we now enjoy because of Christ Jesus. The eternal penalty of our sin has been dealt with decisively. So why should we resist its ongoing presence in our lives? That's what we're thinking about today. And so firstly then, we're dead to sin but alive to God. And that's really um, the point the Apostle makes in verses 1 to 14. Dead to sin but alive to God. Now that sounds like it needs a bit of explanation, doesn't it? So let's see how it works in verses 1 to 2. Let's read them together. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So you can see the apostle there is anticipating a logical objection amongst his readership. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Let's get it going. And the apostle's response is not really, oh, I can see you've made a good point there. He's like, by no means. <laughs> Scared you. Definitely not, no way champion, for you have died to sin right alongside Jesus. And then in verses 3 to 5, he fleshes it out and he says that we've been baptised into Jesus' death, which sounds very confusing, I'll admit. But this is what he means. When you become a Christian, you typically get baptised. That's what you do. And when you get baptised, typically you get immersed, dunked into water. It actually looks like you're kind of drowning at one point. Whether or not that happens precisely, symbolically in baptism, when you first trust in Jesus, you join Jesus in his death. Your death, or the baptism, looks a little bit more like drowning. His death looks a whole lot like crucifixion. But you both die, or as verse 5 says, we have been united with him in his death. Now, when I was younger, I had a friend... <laughs> Sorry, that's not a whole sentence. Um, I had a friend... Um, who had a terrible breakup with a girlfriend. 
And then she quickly started to see another chap and then she quickly got engaged and he quickly got sad and he was the hopeless romantic sort of guy who would probably turn up at her wedding just to feel even worse. So I turned up to his house the day of the wedding with a pair of police handcuffs in my bag, like the real thing, not a novelty item. And I, I figured that if he insisted on going to the wedding, I would handcuff him to me and we'd be going nowhere. We would be united to each other, going and not going to the exact same places together. By the time I turned up to his house, he had actually gone off to play golf with some of his other friends, his real mates, you know. Now, through our baptism, which really means our trusting in Jesus, we are united. We're handcuffed to Jesus. We've joined him even in his death. Where he goes, we go, even to the grave. But hello, you say, uh, I'm still alive. How could I possibly have joined Jesus in death? Which bit of me died precisely? Well, let's read verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What died when we were figuratively handcuffed, joined to Jesus in his death? It was our old self. That man, that woman who was formerly committed to a life in ignorance, indifference or outright rebellion against God, whether we were polite or hostile, that former self died. And only because that old self, that person we used to be, died when we first believed, can we now be free to get on with the job of living for God, of saying no to the power of sin. Maybe it will help to explain what dying to sin is not. Being dead to sin does not mean I no longer want to sin. I may do, and that might be quite an intense longing. Dead to sin doesn't mean I no longer ought to sin, though that's clearly true. Dead to sin doesn't mean I'm no longer guilty of sin, though that's true as well, for there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin means I'm no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. It means I now have the ability to resist and rebel against it in a way I previously didn't. I no longer have to obey it. A new sheriff is in town, ruling my heart. I died to sin when my old self died. Now, one of the great upshots of being united, handcuffed uh, with Jesus in his death is that we're also figuratively handcuffed to him in his resurrection to new life. And we see that in a few places in the passage as well. Let's see it in verses 4 and 5. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8 also says, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. That old man, that old woman, the one who was committed to sin, whether it was polite or impolite, whatever has died, but if you trust in Christ, you have been raised to new spiritual life just as he has. So when you ask the question, why shouldn't I sin? It seems like a logical question. After all, the more sin, the more grace but the real answer is, my old self has died, drowned, been crucified, gone. 
and I am now alive with Christ. That former man who could not say no to sin is in the tomb. And he is a new man, now alive to God. That former woman who couldn't help but obey her sinful instincts is dead. And she is a new woman, now alive to God. What I once was is in the grave, at the bottom of the ocean. And now I'm alive to God. Why would I carry on as though that old mate is still around? If I die to sin, how can I live in it any longer? In fact, why would I even ask the question of verse 1? I am dead to sin, but alive to God. In the second half of the chapter, the Apostle Paul imagines uh, a second objection uh, or question. And this is really, I think, a question he might uh, anticipate would come from his Jewish converts to Christianity. In verse 15, he imagines that what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? In the verse before, verse 14, the apostle insists that a Christian person is not under the Old Testament law, even if they have a Jewish background. The Christian is ruled by a new regime. They live in the new era of grace, which is the unmerited kindness of God, which does not hold our sins against us. But does that mean we have like zero obligation to live a holy and obedient life? Or to ask the question another way around, how does grace motivate us to live a godly life? If we're not under law, but under grace, how does grace move us towards obedience to Jesus? Well, that is a good question. And the apostle's answer is that Christians aren't slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. And in fact, servants might even be a better term because he has in mind kind of like the household servant rather than, say, a modern-day sex slave or somebody working in a sweatshop making T-shirts for Westerners. We're not slaves to sin. We're servants of righteousness. We don't obey sin. We have a new master and we obey God. Well, let's read from verse 16. Don't you know? That when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Tim Keller points out that in these verses, the apostle says something rather remarkable about slaves and masters. He says, you can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be both. Let me repeat that. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be both. We are controlled by the one to which we've offered ourselves whether we're religious or not. And I realise that if you're not a Christian here today or or watching at home, that might sound utterly preposterous. I certainly hope it it doesn't sound self-righteous because one thing that we are acutely aware of as Christians is that we're no better than anyone else. And I'm certainly not a better person than you. I'm quite sure I'm worse. 
And in fact, Christians are told that before we trusted in Christ, we were slaves to sin. But when a person trusts in Christ, where they're set free from sin, and yet that doesn't mean that they're a loose caboose, like a free agent that belongs to no man. In the words of verse 16, having been freed from slavery to sin, Christians are now slaves to obedience. Or in verse 18, slaves to righteousness. Or ultimately, verse 22, slaves to God. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. Either you are a slave to sin, and sin is what you obey, whether you do that politely or impolitely. And I really am trying to say that as humbly and respectfully as I can. Or you're a servant of God and you obey him, not because you're good, but because he's good. But you cannot be neither, and you cannot be both. I worked for Woolworth Gordon for a grand total of four shifts in 1994. I was um, like a night packer rather than a checkout chick, and uh, my standard shift was from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. That's grim, isn't it? And I remember the music that came over the speaker was awful. It was the same chirpy eight songs on repeat endlessly throughout the wee hours of the morning. When I told my supervisor that I couldn't work on Friday nights because I helped with youth group, uh, this is absolute truth. He told me that if I wanted to be a packer, then Woolworths had to be my number one priority. I had to arrange my priorities, offer my service, give my highest allegiance to Woolies, is what he was saying. And I looked at this fellow who was nice enough, but he was, he was a skinny, pasty, chain-smoking chap that I don't think had seen sunlight in about three years. He looked like an unhealthy vampire. <laughs> and I thought, it ain't working for you, Skipper. <laughs> so that's a no from me. Being a servant at Woolies Gordon through the night, it was just not service that led to life. If you trace through the passage from verse 17, there's a wonderful unfolding description of being a slave or a servant to God. It involves a changed heart. It involves a new allegiance. It leads to obedience and new behaviors, behaviors and holiness in living, and ultimately it results in eternal life. So much better than woolies. And it all comes from God. Slavery to sin begins at birth. Thanks so much, Adam, like we saw last week. But slavery to God begins at new birth. When we first believe, when our old self dies, when God's grace enables us to embrace the gospel in our hearts, which changes our motives and then our behaviors, resulting in a total change of life that prevails unto eternity. Thanks be to God. And so Christian, ask that question again. Why would I try to live a, gold, a godly life resisting sin? The answer is because I'm a servant of God, not a slave of sin. Because God has operated on my heart so that I believe the good news about Jesus. And that changes my motives, my actions, my lifestyle, my eternity. I have a new master, a new sheriff rules in my heart. I have a new power to say no to sin and yes to God. Now, as we come to work out what this means for us, it really is valuable to remind ourselves that at its very heart, the Christian faith is a love story in which we are the unlikely 
and unlovely objects of his unwarranted affection and desire to the point where he pursues us, leaving his heavenly home in the person of Jesus, to tread upon the baked earth of our home and then climbing onto a Roman executioner's cross and then descending even unto death in pursuit of us. It's the most remarkable love story. In its very essence, Christianity is a reconciled relationship with God, made possible by the person and work of Jesus. At its heart, it is a relationship. Now, it's also a worldview, but that's not at its heart. It involves a transaction or a trade, but even that is not at the very center. And it includes a sin management program, if you will, in which our sins and shortcomings are forgiven and paid for by Jesus, but that's not at its essence. Relationship with God is at the very center of the Christian faith. Nevertheless, the issue of what to do with the sin in our lives remains, and that is not an incidental question. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us powerful motivations for not carelessly indulging in sin. We are dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We're alive to Christ. Let us live a new life to God. We've been set free from sin and things that lead to death. We've become servants of God and his righteousness. You see, they're very powerful motivations. But also some passionate instruction or exhortation. Let's listen to some of them, and I'll put them up on the screen. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Other half of the verse, but offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And then down in verse 19, offer yourself as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Now friends, just look at them verbs. Count yourselves. Do not let sin reign. Offer yourselves. Very decisive words, aren't they? Sound like they mean business. Sound like they might require discipline and effort, which is okay because discipline's the sort of thing you'd expect a disciple to do. And, and grace isn't as opposed to effort and action, it's opposed to earning and entitlement. But you know what? This, this is less about you know, activating your own personal reserves of willpower and it's more about changing your understanding of who you are and who reigns in your life. Count yourself dead to sin because it no longer rules in you. Consider yourself alive to God. He is the new sheriff in your heart. And only then do not offer the parts of your body, your mind, your mouth, what you say, your hands, your heart, your sexuality, your imagination, your energy, do not offer them to sin, but offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. You're worth thinking through later on. Are there parts of your life that really belong to the old self that you need to count as dead and in the grave? Perhaps it's a habit that you've accumulated and it's just been doing its work in the background of your life for... <laughs> I don't know, five years, 10 years, 20 years. 
Uh, is there a relationship or even a part of a relationship? Maybe there's a bitter attitude of the heart, you know, a negative and critical spirit. Is it not true that as you get older, it gets easier to become negative and critical and bitter? Maybe you look at your life and you go, gee, it doesn't look obviously sinful, but I know in my heart of hearts I am just most committed. I'm selfishly absorbed with myself and my own little program of leisure and opportunities and achievements. Now this passage isn't saying that Christians cannot commit individual sins nor even struggle with habitual sins or addictions. It's all possible. But it is saying that we cannot continue in it deliberately tolerating it without any sense of distaste think of that verse again offer yourselves to god every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness and this passage is also saying with passion i might add it is now possible for us to say no to sin in our lives not that we always will of course not but in any situation we don't have to we're not helpless victims or senseless fools with no other option though that is often how we think of ourselves We can choose now to say no. Now that we have died to sin and are alive to Christ and are servants of God and are filled with His Spirit, a new regime is in place in our lives and a new sheriff rules in our hearts. The corrupt old regime of sin is no longer in charge, though it does love to lob hand grenades into our path all the time. But I want to encourage you, friends, without burdening you, that if you think you cannot resist sin in your life, you know that you can. The point of being freed from sin is not that we never feel its pull, but that we can actually resist its pull by offering ourselves to righteousness. We can now say no to lying. We can now say no to lust. We can now say no to wanting to win every argument. We can now say no to greed and envy. We can now say no to slander. And we can now say no to selfishness whenever those temptations come our way, as they inevitably will. Count yourselves, offer yourselves, he says, offer every part of yourself to God. And so as we finish um, the passage and really finishing our whole time in Romans for now, though we will come back, I thought there's really no better place to finish than verse 23, the final verse in our passage today. Really a favourite memory verse that we all ought to learn. And it reads like this, For the wages of sin is death, that the payoff, what we've earned, of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. No better way to end, except um, in our group on Wednesday night, it occurred to me that we didn't take the full weight of a verse from last week. Uh, And by the way, that's the reason why you should be in a group and go to group. Um, Verse 21 from chapter 5 says this, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we have talked a lot this term about sin, about its origin, uh, about its attachment to us, about its effect on our lives, about its result in death. But if you look here, you can see that grace reigns. The overwhelming goodness of God to undeserving sinners like you and me through Jesus' life, death and resurrection reigns. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Why is that? Because grace reigns. 
where sin leads to death, but the gift of God leads to life. Why is that? Because grace reigns. It reigns. It doesn't just make a useful contribution. It doesn't just square up the ledger, evening things out a bit. It reigns. It rules. It overpowers. It overcomes. Grace reigns. Thanks be to God for his reign of grace that brings life from death through our Lord Jesus Christ. It reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we admit that we kind of think like that imaginary question of verse 1, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may, might increase? In a sense, it's logical, but not when you realise that we have died to sin and we're now alive to you. That though we were slaves to sin, we're now servants of righteousness, ultimately servants of you. Some powerful motivations for obedience and, and resisting sin and aiming to say yes to you. I pray even as we do that, you would just be reminding us of your grace in operation in our lives, so easy for us to turn it into something we do for you when it really is what you've done for us. But truly help us to count ourselves as dead to sin and to offer every part of ourselves to you. For we know that grace reigns. Amen.